we basically, we lived with roommates until our income exceeded seven figures per year. Welcome to The Fi Show, where you get a behind-the-scenes look into financial independence. Here's your host, Cody and Justin. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of The Fi Show. Today, we have on Todd Baldwin, who was a real estate investor who went from nothing to a million dollars in revenue this year through his real estate empire and entrepreneurial ventures. But before all of that, let's check in my co-host, Justin. What is going on, man? Well, this weekend was actually a, you know, not a traveling weekend for me, but it was one of my favorites. I went just straight Home Depot dad mode, mowed the grass, hung some string lights, built some kind of custom cabinet stuff for our shelving for my closet. Uh, but I've realized, you know, I think a lot of people think about traveling as expensive. I think any weekend where I'm home by myself is expensive because I cannot keep myself out of Home Depot. But how about you, Cody? Well, I got to say, I'm a little bit jealous because I remember you and James and we were down at FinCon talking about all your DIY stuff and I'm just, I'm not as good at it. So maybe I need to get some more practice <laughs> out of my belt and start to do some more DIY projects I'm actually proud of. We'll get you a Craig jig and that'll just like, it'll really simplify things and you can start making some like just, you know, simple like shelves and tables and things. <laughs> Perfect. So on Friday, we had Lauren, my fiance's uncle's retirement party. So he was a police officer for 32 years, finally hanging it up and not getting to enjoy the fruits of that government pension, that government job. He's been doing it for, again, 32 years, a long time. So that was fun celebrating that. We hung out pretty much all day Saturday with her dad. It's his birthday. We went axe throwing. I lost in the final round by two points to her brother. So I'm still a little upset about that, but it was a lot of fun. <laughs> we ended up going to the local hockey team's game at night and then hung out with some friends. And now it's back to the grind. And actually, another thing I spent a lot of time on this weekend was you know, we have the online courses, myself and Julie, and we did a launch of the Etsy course. And it was just like, anything that could have gone wrong, went wrong in some capacity. So like, we'd have to go in and mess with a system like one of the timers is wrong in an email. That's just part of business, but it all worked out. <laughs> but Justin, that's enough about us. Let's take a quick moment for one of our partners. Keeping track of your net worth is one of the most important things you can do on your journey to financial independence. If you don't have an idea of what your net worth is, there's no way that you can keep your quote unquote score. One of our favorite tools to keep this score is called Personal Capital. If you haven't already started using it, it's an online software that basically compiles all of your data, it crunches all your assets, all your liabilities, and spits out a net worth number and allows you to track it day by day, month by month. Yeah, Cody, one of the big things that hold people back when they're doing activities like tracking their expenses or tracking their net worth is just they look at it as a big burden. And this allows you to go in with one username and one password and access as many financial accounts as you have. These can be loans, these can be 401ks, these can be HSAs, bank accounts, credit cards. They're all linked there. The other thing I really like about personal capital is it's very investing focused. So you can go in there and look at your allocation across your entire portfolio. So you don't just look at your allocation in one type of account, but your allocation as a person completely. And if you want to use the same tool that me and Cody use to track our net worth, which is completely free, you can do so at thefyshow.com slash PC. That's thefyshow.com slash PC. All right. So Todd Baldwin, this is a name you don't want to forget because this dude is going places, super motivated, super driven. That was something I really got from this episode. And we get to dive into kind of his story, how he got started. When I actually first reached out to him, I saw him on that CNBC article 
And I just thought, this is a replicable story. It's not, he's not doing anything crazy. He's not doing anything that's so far out of the reach for the average person. He's making a bunch of these strategic decisions, getting this real estate empire together, going out on his own, being an entrepreneur. And yeah, it's a, it's replicable. And that's not in a derogatory way. But I think as you listen to this episode, you'll be like, you know what? That doesn't seem like that crazy of a path. And now Todd is making over 100K a month. He, you know, house hacks when he didn't need to, where we get into his secret shopping addiction and how he gets to go to the movies and all these different events for free. And then at the end, we kind of talk about his newest development, which is his TV deal that he might be landing like an actual TV show. All of that stuff and more is covered in this episode. Yeah. And one thing that was really interesting, too, was just like the mindset that got him going like that. He just wanted to be rich, like he was coming from that background and he didn't you know, know how or why or whatever. But he's like, I just want to be rich. And it's also was really impressive to me is like how long he is stuck with, you know, some of those things. And you realize quickly, and I think you realize that about a lot of people in the space that while they are driving towards money, it's not all about the money like they're he obviously could, you know, already have bought a big, nice house. He could have already done all these things. But you can tell he gets a kick out of, you know, living for free and doing all the secret shopper stuff. We really think you're going to enjoy this episode. And if you do and want to share that with some friends and say like, hey, this is an awesome, like Cody said, reputable story. You should check this out. You can do that at thefyshow.com slash Todd. That's thefyshow.com slash T-O-D-D. Take it away, Todd. So, yeah, I mean, I just have one of the oldest stories in the book. I grew up poor and I wanted to be rich. So I was raised by a single mother. She struggled a lot to you know, put food on the table for three kids. We got evicted. We had to relocate. You know, she was making 10 bucks an hour to support four people. And so I got my first job when I was 12 years old, shoveling horse poop for $3 an hour. <laughs> and um, at that point, at 12 years old, I was like, all right. I got to make millions of dollars. And so really, ever since I was a kid, I've just been on this track. Like I wanted to make a million dollars a year by the time I was 30. And I started a few businesses like a a lawn care business. And then I sold candy because my high school didn't have candy in their vending machines. So there was this very like unmet need for candy and soda that wasn't there. So I made a lot of money doing that. And then I started making money online. After going to college and met my wife, I ended up dropping out of college, started buying real estate, and that's when things really took off. And um, I am happy to say I have met my goal this year. I'm 29 this year, turned 30 next year, but this year I'll net about 1.4 million after all expenses and taxes. So I held up to the promise I made myself when I was 12 about making a million bucks a year by the time I was 30. That is insane and definitely a lot to unpack in there. You know, I'm really curious like when you talk about meeting your wife and then dropping out of college and then getting into real estate, like walk me through why you decided to drop out of college, what drove you to do that. And and then, you know, we can start to unpack how you turn from dropping out of college to actually getting into real estate. Sure. Yeah. So first I'll say my wife is a hell of a lot smarter than me. Um, She was valedictorian in high school. She graduated like summa cum laude from undergrad where we met. And then she went on to grad school and was like student of the year, like did all these things. And here I am, you know, like dropping out. (laughs) But the reason why, so when I was in high school, I was told my whole life, like, oh, the way to get ahead is to go to college. Like I, I thought that college is where you learned how to become rich. And I got to college and I immediately found out that's not the case. And I'm not dogging on college. Like some degrees are really important. Like if you want to be a doctor or a lawyer, you have to go to school. But for me, I wanted to be an entrepreneur and I didn't actually need school to do that. And, you know, like I took a marketing class from a professor who's never done marketing. 
they got a teaching degree and they decided to teach marketing and, you know, stuff like that, where I was like, I learned more about marketing when I was starting my lawn care business when I was 15 and I, I put an ad in the newspaper and I learned more about marketing when I was selling candy to my high school classmates. Like there's nothing this teacher, this professor can teach me because they've never marketed a business. And that really bothered me because I felt like I was learning from people who weren't qualified. At the time I was feeling this, I had a company reach out to me about a sales job. And uh, at the time I was a sophomore in college. So they thought I was graduating, but I wasn't. And we just agreed to keep in touch. They contacted me about a year later to go work for them. And they were like, look, we think you're great, but not so great. We want to wait for you to be done with school. Do you want to just come work for us now? And I was like, okay. I dropped out of college. I went to go work for this sales company. I think eight or nine months into it, I was making like 110 grand a year. And I just saved every penny I could to start buying real estate. And so was this like a commission only? Like here, Todd, this is a zero salary. You're going to have to hustle your butt off, but we're going to give you a fat commission if you start to close sales. So it was heavy on the commissions, but I did actually have a base salary of 50,000 when I first started. So, and I'll back up a little bit. So this company had reached out to me on LinkedIn when I was a sophomore in college. The reason they reached out to me is I had done two commission only sales internships in college. And the reason I did commission only is because, you know, again, I come from a poor family. I was looking at tuition and books and rent. And if I just got like a normal minimum wage job that's available to college students, just doing the numbers mathematically, it wouldn't work. There was no, there wasn't enough money. So I decided to forgo a salary entirely and take a commission only sales job. And that's actually what helped put me through college and pay rent and food and all that stuff. After doing that, I got a job um, at American Family Insurance, and then I was also the marketing director of a pension company. This is all while I'm like a sophomore in college. From that just crazy resume, I guess, um, I was contacted by a big, huge insurance conglomerate, and they're the ones that called me. Really roundabout way to answer your question. (laughs) I did have a base salary of 50K, and then at the time, I was making 9% commission. I ended up breaking a record for cold calling, I think my first month in, and then Maybe eight months later, my salary had doubled to 100000 and my commissions went from 9% to 40%. Walk me through, you mentioned cold calling, like walk me through this sale. So you're mostly selling insurance. So you're just literally going like through a phone book, like where you get this list. And then what is the conversation like? Yeah, well, that's probably something that I should clarify. So I was selling commercial insurance. So it was all business to business. So um, I wasn't like calling up, you know, a random grandma to sell her Geico. Um, I was, uh, I was specifically selling to big companies for like their, you know, their liability insurance, or if they had like a fleet of trucks insurance for that, or their health and employee benefits, like the, the, you know, their health insurance for their staff. So I was calling big companies, uh, having conversations with CFOs and CEOs, which is really great experience. And yeah, my quota was to basically just make like 80 to hundred calls a day. So I just did that every day, just smiling and dialing. And it, it was fine. <laughs> Not the funnest job, but it, it got me to where I am. So no complaints. And so, you know, as someone that young sophomore, you're 19, 20 years old, making $100,000 a year, like that's an insane amount of money to most people that age. What were you doing with the money? Were you saving? Were you investing? Were you buying real estate? So I dropped out of, when I dropped out of college, gosh, I think I was 21 when I, when I actually dropped out of college. And so I was making this money a little like 21, 22. I was living as cheaply as I possibly could. I rented a bedroom in a house with a bunch of dudes. I didn't even buy a bed. I slept on the floor. And I still drove the car that I was driving in college. I'm still driving that car today, by the way. It's a 2009 Ford Focus, like 180,000 miles on it. It's still my daily driver today. 
I was literally saving every penny that I possibly could because I knew that I wanted to get into the real estate game. And so I was just basically saving for a down payment. And so my girlfriend at the time, we bought a house together. She's now my wife. But basically, I was just saving all of that money. We used a first-time homebuyer program, putting 3.5% down. So we bought a, we were able to buy a $500,000 house with like 19 grand down. And we did that. And then we, she and I occupied the master bedroom. We rented out every other bedroom to friends from college or random people off Craigslist. So we were living for free in a house that we owned. And because we were living for free, we were able to, uh, we were able to save so much more money. And so that is what allowed us to buy our second house and then our third and fourth. And it just snowballed from there. And walk us through that snowball a little bit. So you buy the first house, like how long is it before you start to buy the second one? And then just kind of walk us through how you ramped up. So we bought our first house, I believe, December 16th of 2015. By January 1st of 2016, so like two weeks later, we had all of the bedrooms rented out. So we were living for free right away. What our mortgage payment would have been if we didn't have roommates, I think it would have been, I don't know, 3000 per month, something like that. We just saved that because we weren't spending it. So we were just putting it all in a separate account to buy the next house. We wanted to wait 12 months to buy our second property because you can buy a new owner-occupied primary residence there. You don't have to put 20% down and your interest rate is a little bit better. But the perfect house came up about nine months after we bought the first one. So we did have to pony up 20% down. The house we bought was 525000 so 20% of that, you know, is over a hundred grand. And um, if people are curious how we were able to save so much money in nine months, I mean, part of it is because I was very blessed to have a six-figure income from my job. My wife also at that point had a really good income from her accounting firm. And we we're also living completely for free. So when you have that sort of trifecta, you're able to save quite a bit of money. And we bought our so we bought our second house nine months later. Our third house, we bought six months after that. We did buy that one owner-occupied and moved into it. And when we moved into that third house, we leased out the master bedroom that we just moved out of. So now we're cash flowing on that house even more. Then maybe 12 months later, we bought our fourth house. Two months after that, we bought our fifth house. And then a year and a half later, we bought our sixth house, which is the duplex that I live in now. And that's what I'm recording. And I'm recording in one of the rooms in this duplex. We put one half of the duplex on Airbnb. And then we converted a garage spot into a studio apartment. We had that on Airbnb as well. Airbnb was killing it until COVID happened. And then we took our Airbnbs down and just leased them out like on regular long-term leases. And that's what I love. I remember reading your story on CNBC. Like you have millions of dollars worth of real estate at this point and you bought this duplex and you move into it. You're renting rooms out. You convert the garage. You're renting out the other side of the duplex. I just think it's like the perfect recipe for financial independence. You know, you can hit every milestone in the book. But if you kind of stick to those core tenets of what got you there, like your wealth can just keep on multiplying. So I just just want to give kudos to you, Todd. It's super cool. Thank you. Yeah. You know, before we bought our duplex, we lived in a house. It was me and my wife and then six other people. So eight of us living in one house. At that point, we were making half a million bucks a year. We were sharing one car. My wife and I were sharing one car, which is that same Ford Focus. It was crazy. When we moved into our duplex, we had roommates at first, I think for the first year. We now no longer have roommates. I think we got rid of our roommates in November of 2020. So all of 2021, this is our first year of not having roommates, and it's amazing. <laughs> but we still <laughs> we still do rent out the other half. But yeah, I mean, we basically, we lived with roommates until our income exceeded seven figures per year. And I know that I'm not saying anyone should do that because most people would just live with roommates for all eternity if that was their method. But 
I'm not a flashy guy. I have very simple taste. My favorite thing in the world is like pepperoni pizza and a chocolate chip cookie. <laughs> like if I have those things, I'm very happy. I don't need much more than that. I didn't need to go out and buy a Rolls Royce and live in a mansion yet. And I will, admittedly, I will live in a nice house probably soon. Like, you know, my wife and I want to have kids someday. Our kids are not going to grow up in a duplex. They're going to live in a probably a waterfront mansion. But I feel like as long as you can delay gratification and put that off, it's going to be so much better in the long run. And I don't know if you could walk us through like these incomes, like you mentioned, where you were making a little over six figures and your wife had a decent income, and then you go to like a half million and you referenced earlier you're being over a million. What are kind of the ratios of where this money is coming from? Like how much of it is coming from real estate? How much of it is coming from your normal day job? Yeah, great question. So my normal day job at its peak, I had a salary of 150000 and then commissions of about 40%. And in the insurance business, you get what's called residuals. And so like, let's go say, let's say I sell an account and it's like a $100,000 sale. So my commission check of 40%, I get 40 grand that year. But every time that that account renews with us, I get 25% cut of that. So if that $100,000 contract renews for another year, well, I get 25 grand from there. And then what happens is over time, you build up this big book of business. So where you might have clients, their business to you is like, Two million bucks, right? And you're getting 25% of that every single year on top of your salary, on top of your new business commissions. So that's certainly where a lot of my money came from. My biggest day, I think, in that sales job was, I think, around 50,000. I came home with a check of like, I mean, after taxes and stuff, I net a little over like 35,000, but it was a great day. So that was a huge part of it. But then because of all my real estate, every single house we were renting it out by the bedroom. So at our peak, we had 40-ish tenants. Our average room was about a thousand bucks a month. So we were collecting 40 grand a month in rent as well as me having this crazy, you know, six-figure salary and commissions. And then my wife also has a six-figure salary working um, at the accounting firm. So that was probably like the height of it. Today, I no longer have my day job because the money I've made from real estate, from other things that I'm doing, like I have opportunities from like television spots. And um, at any given time, I have like a bunch of different revenue streams, whether it's YouTube, secret shopping, real estate, and then wholesaling too. I have left my nine to five. I, I'm completely self-employed now. And then because this has been a, such a crazy year for real estate, we've also sold a bunch. So I'm doing wholesale deals, selling some of our rentals, and that's put our income just like through the roof. Like I did a wholesale deal earlier last month where in like a couple of hours, I made 50 grand. And it was crazy. And so a bunch of stuff like that. So right now, most of my money comes from real estate that will be pivoting probably to television soon. What I love is that you still have a focus on frugality. I know when I was looking at that budget, it might have changed slightly since then. But the budget that CNBC published, it was like 1200 a month. And I think the biggest expense category, you'd assume it's like housing and transportation, not for Todd. It was like insurance, I think it was. It's like 500 bucks a month and you were spending a total of $1,200 a month. One thing I do want to dig into just because I think it's interesting. And you know, all of us, once we hit all these different milestones, we hold on to some of those old quirks. And I know secret shopping was something you kind of started out of necessity to impress your girlfriend, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> yes, you're still doing it to this day. So I'd love to hear, you know, how you kind of fell in love with secret shopping, what it is and how you're able to, you know, maximize those benefits, even though it might just be a drop in the bucket at this point. We'll be right back after a quick word from one of our sponsors. Today's sponsor is one I use on a daily basis at my company, Gold City Ventures. That is the sound of a sale in your Shopify store. But did you know that Shopify now also powers in-person selling? 
Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store or small business. Accept payments, manage inventory, they have everything. Shopify brings together your in-person and online sales business into one source of truth, one dashboard, everything in one place. You know exactly what's going on. And now they have all these customization options. They have plug and play tools that you can integrate with Instagram or TikTok or wherever. You can take your payments by phone or by tablet. Shopify makes it easy. Plus, if you have any questions, their support team is there to help you. I know we have a lot of entrepreneurs in this audience and Shopify POS just breaks down that barrier to accepting payments with your business. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash show, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash show to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash show. Now back to the show. Totally. That's a great question. So I started secret shopping. You're exactly right. To impress my girlfriend, the girl I was dating in college, who now is my wife. For anyone who may not know, secret shopping is basically you get paid to go evaluate restaurants, movie theaters, really any type of business. And it's basically these establishments want to know how their employees are doing. They want to know what the public thinks of their product or service. So they hire mystery shoppers to go pose as normal customers and then, you know, go purchase their product or service and then evaluate it. So I would take my girlfriend out on all these dates and we'd get paid to go. And it was awesome. We'd go to the movies, go to fancy restaurants. And I was kind of broke in college before I got this, you know, great sales job because all of my money was basically tuition and rent and food and all that stuff. And so I wanted to take her out on dates and this was a good way for me to afford it. Fast forward to today, I'm kind of, I don't know if addicted is the right word, but like now that I know I can get things for free, it's really hard for me to be willing to go pay for them. So like one example is movie theaters. I don't remember the last time I paid out of pocket to go see a movie in the theater. Not because I don't think it's worth it. It's just because I know there are secret shops there and I can fill out a survey that takes me like 10 minutes and I can get paid to go to the movies. So the last one that I saw was Shang-Chi, the new Marvel movie. And I strategically went to the AMC theater on a Tuesday because they have $5 tickets on a Tuesday. And from the secret shop, I was paid like 50 bucks. So it was like, you know, I made a profit of $45 to go see a Marvel movie, which I really enjoyed. And it was just like, you know, why not? So yes, I do. I I know it's ridiculous because I don't need to do that anymore. But it's just like, it's almost like the principle of the thing. Like, I know I can make money to do this. So why would I pay out of pocket to go? Yeah, I mean, I think that totally makes sense. Like, I think me and Cody both get that mentality where you don't have to, but there's a little bit of a thrill out of it. You also, like you said, like, why would you pay for something you don't have to? But I think the thing that keeps coming to my mind is like, what's driving you now? Like, what is the point in making this money? Because you're not really spending it. You don't really necessarily need to spend a lot of money. So why do you keep pushing to make more money? And and what are you planning on doing with all this money? It's a really good question. And it has sort of like a multi-part answer. The first answer is, I want my children to inherit land, businesses, and property. And I know, I sort of know my role. My, I come from a poor family. I'm certainly in my, you know, my downline. I'm certainly the first person with any sort of financial success. And my role is to change my family tree. It's not to go out and buy a Ferrari and flex on Instagram, right? Like it's, it's to change my lineage, so to speak. And so I'm planting trees today so that my grandchildren will enjoy the shade. I know I'm doing things that I personally won't reap the benefits from. That being said, 
I certainly do want to live in a dope house on the water when the time is right. <laughs> I, I fully admit it. I also would like, you know, if we're going to live on the water, you better have a boat. You know, So it's <laughs> I'm going to have fun. I'm going to enjoy myself. I think the biggest thing is, man, I'm 29. Like, I have so much time to, you know, just build. And that was really my thing is like my 20s were for building, not to go splurge on a bunch of stuff. To me, the, the goal was never to goof off in my 20s and then retire when I'm 65. It was to use my 20s so that I could retire at 30 and then have a life of complete freedom. And then, of course, I also just love the game. Technically speaking, I can retire today, but I'd be I'd be bored. I, I actually really enjoy building businesses and acquiring properties and doing different projects. It's fun for me. And I'm very lucky that my hobby is monetized. Like I'm I'm so blessed that what I enjoy to do, like I love building companies. I love the game of it. And the money is is an awesome byproduct of that. Like I mentioned that I had a wholesale deal where I made 50 grand in like four hours. And the 50 grand wasn't even the best part. Like I got the check and I was like, oh, sweet, that's awesome. I was happy for like five seconds. And I was like, well, now what? Because now I'm like bored again. And then, of course, I want to do a lot of stuff and give back to the community. I want to teach inner city kids about financial education. If I make enough money someday... I would like to use it to help causes that I'm passionate about. Like there's a lot of garbage in the ocean and and I want to do my part to clean that up. And like, you know, just just other things that I think I can't do without a lot of resources. I could go march in the street about plastic in the ocean. But is is that going to do it? Or will me investing into a company that builds machines to clean up oceans? Will that actually do it? It's sort of beyond myself, too. After after a certain point, we're like, what is going to be my legacy and how can I give back? Love that. Love the noble causes, man. I think that's that's awesome that you're building towards something where you end up giving back to your family, to the community. I did read, though, Todd, that, you know, once you hit, I think it was 30, that you are going to make a splurge purchase or two. I think the quote was like, I'm not going to be spending money on luxuries in my 20s. But once I turn 30, you know, the money's flying out of the wallet. Maybe not. I might be paraphrasing a bit there. What's the first thing you're going to buy for yourself once you hit that, you know, 30 years old milestone? Yes. So I turn I turned 30 not too not too far from now. May of 2022 is when I my 30th birthday. It's coming. It sort of depends because I think so one thing that I want that just stupid and makes no sense is the Tesla Roadster. It's a $200,000 car. It literally makes no sense. But I want it. <laughs> so I'm probably going to get it. The reason why I would actually be okay with buying the Tesla Roadster instead of a Lamborghini or Ferrari is because the specs on the Tesla Roadster are very similar to a Bugatti or a top Ferrari or a very high-end Lambo. And although the Tesla Roadster seems quite expensive, 200000 is a lot of money, a similar supercar can be over a million dollars. Like a Bugatti with very similar specs is like two million bucks. If I was going to get a Ferrari for like the same specs, it'd probably be around half a million. Same thing with a Lambo. So it's almost like for the value that it brings, it's I'm telling myself it's it's a good deal. <laughs> um, that being said, I'll probably still buy it used. I'll buy it like three to four years used. So perhaps I can get a two hundred thousand dollar car for one hundred and twenty grand is my sort of thought. But before that, before buying the flashy car, I think buying my dream house. I don't know if you can see I'm doing bunny fingers. <laughs> dream house <laughs> would be more important than that, because that's where, you know, my kids are going to grow up. It's where my wife and I are going to live. Whatever that looks like, like I would love to buy an estate that has a main house, hopefully on the water, and then a guest cottage or two. So like if our parents ever need to come like have help, they can live in the guest cottage on our property and not have to go into like some 
assisted living home where it's like depressing and everyone's dying. <laughs> I would like them to, to like be comfortable in their old age. Obviously, that's not going to happen for like, you know, 20 years or so, but just something like that. So, yeah, my, my biggest purchase will probably be a mansion of some sort. If it's on the water, I'll get a boat. And then when I can get a used one, the Tesla Roadster and then perhaps a helicopter just because <laughs> I took flying lessons and it was awesome. It, flying is amazing. I don't know if either one of you have had the chance to fly an aircraft, but it was it was super dope. So I could see myself getting a helicopter someday. Yeah, I've done some fixed wing flying, but uh, helicopters, although are awesome, like the way they fly, it seems like just magic to me. Like, I don't really understand the aerodynamics of a helicopter. You know, you just talked a little bit about like the house and like a waterfront location. And that's one thing we really haven't covered is location, like where you were doing these real estate deals, what kind of market you were in. And then, you know, as a bonus, like maybe which oceanfront or what waterfront do you want to live on in this house? So the real estate that I've bought so far, it's all been in the greater Seattle area, but not Seattle proper. So like not in the right, not right in the middle of the city. I typically love to invest in areas just outside of major cities because I think that they're the best for appreciation, especially because as Seattle gets more and more expensive, people are moving to the outskirts or the suburbs. And if I can buy a property that's like 15 minutes outside of downtown and people are now wanting to move out of downtown, the value of my properties skyrocket up. Also, because I'm renting out all of my properties by the bedroom, I want to make sure that all of my properties are near public transportation in case people don't have cars. So they're always on a bus line. The lots are big enough for parking for everyone if they do have cars, but I like to have it so it's close to public transportation. Pretty much areas that are traditionally undervalued areas that are either about to go through a transition or in the middle of going through a transition. Like I, this duplex that I bought, I bought this duplex in a working class suburb of Seattle called Burien. It's never been a nice area. Um, it's not a bad area, but it's never been a nice area. I bought this duplex in August of 2019 for 900 grand. And since then, there's been a new community center that's put in, new libraries, new restaurants are opening up, new cool breweries. Today, the value on this house is 1.4 million. And at the time I'm recording this, it's been what, like two years since I bought the, bought the place. So I've realized half a million bucks in appreciation in just a couple of years because of my strategy where I buy in an undervalued area that's going through a transition and then you just ride the wave of appreciation. And so it sounds like most of your focus has been within Seattle. So you know the market, you kind of know what's on the come up. Do you have proxies where other people might use these same tactics in their own home market? Like, how do you know that a place is on the come up? Some people might have intuitions, like, you know, people in 2007 might have been like, Detroit's on the come up, but they were wrong. Right, exactly. <laughs> so I personally, and I'll, I'll answer this and then I'll go back. So I realized I forgot to answer one of your questions too. But um, I, I realized that I wanted to invest not in the actual downtown area of Seattle, just because it was already so inflated. And for my model of renting it out by the bedrooms, it's like, it's so, a lot of those houses don't even have driveways, you know, like it's, it's all street parking. That just wouldn't have worked for my model. So outside of a city, outside of a major city is a plus for my model. And then looking at areas, just literally just driving through them, like getting up early on a Sunday and just pounding the pavement and driving through, like I would drive through neighborhoods that weren't that great, but I saw like, oh, you know, they're putting in a library or a brand new like elementary school is going up or community center. There's an area called White Center, which I'm really excited about, too. Historically, it's been the ghetto like it was called Rat City for like 20 years. But 
There's all sorts of new pubs and breweries going up there. They're cleaning up the city. The old sort of crappy houses are being torn down and new beautiful apartments are being put up. That's a really exciting area. And so it wasn't necessarily just speculation. It was actually getting in my car and going and driving through neighborhoods. I I probably looked at 100 properties before I bought this duplex in Burien. I literally looked at 100 properties. And I found this when I told my wife, hey, this is the one. This is the one we're getting. And now it's worth 500K more than what we bought it for two years ago. So there is some legwork. It's work, you know, like I I don't want to get it twisted that it's just like, oh, you know, I just flipped a coin and this was the house and now I'm worth millions of dollars. Like, I'm not so arrogant to say I didn't get lucky. I did get lucky. But there was also a lot of homework that I was doing to figure this out. And then I do apologize. I'll go back because you asked me the waterfront that I wanted to live on eventually. In my area, sort of like the nice area would be like Mercer Island, Medina, or Bellevue. Those are sort of nice areas. Bill Gates, he has a house on Lake Washington, which is in sort of my area, like Mercer Island, Bellevue, Medina. It's all right there. I would love to have a house on Lake Washington or on Lake Sammamish. And I think lakefront living would be amazing. You could have a little cabana. I want my boat and the dock. We'd go wakeboarding, you know, every summer and... uh yeah, so that's sort of like what I'm looking at. And sorry to jump back and forth, but I, I realized I forgot to answer the question, so I wanted to make sure I get that in. No worries, Todd. <laughs> as long as we catch the invite and come wakeboarding, we're, yeah, it's all cool. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> so it seems like, you know, all throughout this journey, even from getting that first job, obviously you had a pretty stellar resume going through college with these zero salary, 100% commission sales jobs is networking. And I think you're, you'd be a great guy to ask this question to it because, you know, now you're getting a TV deal. You've gotten all these different real estate deals. It sounds like you've done a lot of the legwork. You've made the right connections. You've met the right people. You've been on you know, a lot of huge podcasts and big media outlets. Just some general tips, I guess, in terms of networking. Like, do you have a spreadsheet where you keep all the people you reach out to? Do you have you know, a target list of these are the top 10 people I need to connect with and I'm going to leverage my current connections to like get at these people strategically? Just love to hear you know, from a general overview what networking strategies you're using. Yeah. So networking is huge. Talking to the right people. I try to always offer free value first because if I'm networking with someone, odds are that they're at a higher level than I am. And that's why I want to network with them. And so I try to do something for them. And it can be anything like whether they need someone to edit a video for them or they they need, you know, like someone to do cold calling or like if I can shadow them and do, do something, what, really whatever it is that they want within reason, <laughs> um, and give them free value first. That's that's key. I do have a spreadsheet of people I want to talk to. I have a spreadsheet of shows that I want to contact to go on. And I figured like, man, if I contact 100 shows, maybe 10 of them talk to me and one of them actually says yes, that's really all I need. But it's a numbers game. You know, I'm going to start by contacting 100. I've gotten contacted by a few networks, few um, streaming platforms to do reality shows about real estate and stuff like that. And so that's cool, right? Like it, it never would have happened if I didn't go out and network and try to meet the right people. Um, I do think it's important to offer the value first, if possible. Um, I get I get DMs all the time. Um, my inbox flooded with people that are like, hey, can you be my mentor? Teach me how to do real estate, all these things. And like, I literally, I just, and I'm, I don't want to be rude to anyone, especially if they like, if they are inspired by my story and they want to talk to me, that's, it, it's incredibly flattering. But it's also, I don't have time for it. Um, when I first did, when the CNBC interview first came out, that thing went viral. And I did a really good job of trying to make sure to talk to everyone who wanted to talk to me. Um, 
And people wanted to go to coffee and they wanted to do phone calls and all these things. And I wasn't charging for my time because I feel kind of gross about that. But when people would call me on the phone, I would I'd be literally I was on the phone for 12 hours a day just talking to people because they wanted to learn what I've done. And I wasn't doing any of my actual work. I was like, man, a whole day is gone. I didn't look at a single property to buy. I didn't go out and, you know, show a house for rent. Like none of I wasn't productive at all. And that's when I started YouTube because I was like, well, instead of doing these individual phone calls, I can just make a video and it will answer all these questions. But still, people, of course, wanted to talk to me or wanted to go to coffee. And it got to the point where um, I had help sifting through the amount of messages that I got. And I realized that if I went to coffee with um, everybody that wanted to get coffee with me, um, I would literally have a coffee date, so to speak, every day for the next three years. And I don't even drink coffee, guys. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I was like, this is not this is not sustainable. So and so going back to offering value first, if somebody wants me to be their mentor or to talk to me and they first say, hey, I have some ideas that could really boost your engagement on Instagram or YouTube. Here's some numbers that I ran. Here's a mock up. I love for you to take a look at that. That's like a way better way for me to actually respond to that message. And it's it's not because I'm an a-hole or trying to be mean. It's because like I protect my time now and I just I just don't have time to have a phone call or get coffee with everyone. So when I go to network with people, that's what I do, because those people that I'm networking with, like, dude, their their watches are worth more than my house. Right. <laughs> like, They're not just going to like agree to sit down. So I have to offer them some sort of free value. And so if you can give something in that relationship to make it worth it for that person to take you under their wing and mentor you, that's when you're going to be successful. And I love that you're talking about protecting your time. It's definitely super important, like the deeper you get into, because you always want to give back as much as you can. But at the same time, like you have a family, like you have other people that need your time and you, and you have other goals that you want to do. But you're obviously not completely slowing down. You still got a ton going on. And I'm curious the dynamic, like with your wife, is she like, Todd, we're good. Slow down. Like you don't seem like somebody who really ever wants to completely slow down. But, it, you know, I'm just like with that delayed gratification, is she on board with like, yeah, we're good. We can wait longer. Or is she like, listen, we're, we're good right now. We don't need to do this anymore. You know, it's interesting. So my wife is totally on board for slowing down. She also doesn't need or want to the same level a waterfront mansion. It's just, it's just not important to her. We live in a duplex. We live for free. I think she would be happy to continue living in this duplex for a long while and live for free and just live a simple life. Like we could both, you know, quit working everything and just chill and travel and live for free. And that's very appealing too. I don't know what it is exactly because I, I don't consider myself very materialistic. I mean, I, I do want a few big things, but that's it. Like I don't need a lot of stuff. I do want a nice house and I do eventually want a nice car. I think part of it is I want my children to go to a great school and in nicer areas, the schools are better. And that's, I mean, that's controversial, but it's the truth. And so if I get into the nicest area, well, that's the number one school district in the state if we want our kids to go to public school. If not, we'll send them to private. My wife certainly is on board to slow down and not be so aggressive, but she also knows that I'm not built that way. I don't have a full-time job now anymore. And I took a couple days where I was like, there was just nothing to do. So, you know, I went to the movies I went to the shooting range. I think I went go-karting and it was awesome. The very next day, I was like, man, I need to get a job. <laughs> like, <laughs> I was like, I don't need the money. I was just bored. So um, I think I always need something to do, something to keep me busy. Even if it's just a hobby that I monetize, 
just a little bit. I think that's something that I would do. But yeah, my wife is totally okay living the more simple life. I just think I'm I'm just too ambitious for that. Like I just I'm almost never satisfied. Not that I'm unhappy, but that's the flaw of of uh, ambitious men is it's never enough. I don't think I'll ever be at the point where I'm like, okay, yeah, it's time to do nothing. Because even when I travel, I like to work remotely and I, it's actually fun for me to make money on vacation. I know it's weird, but like if I go to Bali for like a couple months I want and I can like go, you know, make 20 grand during that time too, I, I totally will. So it's just, I think it's just in my DNA. I can totally relate to that big time, Todd. Like at this point, I don't really need to, you know, work hard at all or make any more money, but it's just like the hunt. You know, building businesses, I just keep getting drawn, keep getting drawn. I do want to dig in a little bit more to the networking thing, because I think honestly for me, and it sounds like for you as well, that has been like such a crucial piece of you know our success. For me, it was, you know, reaching out, giving value first, offering kind of free services in exchange for building relationships with people who were in places I wanted to be. So, you know, for you, I know you mentioned, you know, someone who said, hey, I have these like viral YouTube and Instagram tips and I've been analyzing your numbers. These could really help you out. But, you know, from your actual story, what were some of the things that you were giving to whether it was a person or an organization to kind of, you know, get in with them on their good side and then ultimately transform that relationship into something that's going to benefit you later on? Yeah, great question. So when I first dropped out of college to take that sales job, there was a guy in the office who was the best salesman. And I knew that I wanted to learn from him because he was the best. His numbers were always, always the greatest. He, he was making, I think, half a million dollars a year at the time. And so I knew I wanted to sort of attach myself at the hip to this guy. And so what I did is nobody likes to cold call. Cold calling sucks, right? So I got really, really good on the phone. I got really good at cold calls. I mentioned that I I broke a record at my company the first month in with the amount of appointments I set via cold call. And I just got really good at it. So I came to this guy, this top salesman, and I was like, hey, if you have a bunch of leads or I have leads too, I'll call them for you. And if I set appointments for them. I'm happy to do that for you. As long as you take me on the appointment and I can be a fly on the wall and just shadow you and see your sales process. And he thought that was a great idea because the only reason he would provide me value of teaching me sales is if I set up appointments for him where he can go make a big commission check. And so I would set up appointments for him every single week and he didn't have to cold call and he could just go close the deal because he was such an amazing salesperson. So that's an example of like real story. Like, yeah, I did something for him, made these phone calls, helped him out. And in exchange, I got to watch and learn from this amazing salesperson. I'll never forget this conversation because I went to him. I was really excited because I just found out I was going to make like a hundred grand in a year. And in my first year making six figures, because of course I was 22. So of course it was, I was making like 110 grand, something like that. And I went into his office and I told him that, and I was really happy. And he was just like, what are you happy about? And I was like, well, I'm going to get $100,000. And he was like, I don't get it. Like, are you are you bragging or are you complaining about it? And I was like, what do you mean? And he was just like, a hundred grand is nothing. A hundred grand is nothing. You need to be making half a million or more at minimum. Go back in your office and go make some more phone calls. And to me, even though that seems harsh and ridiculous, that was huge for me. Because I came from a poor family... I thought a hundred grand a year was just a crazy obscene amount of money. And he was like, dude, it's nothing. And that mindset, frankly, is what helped me to, I mean, now I make a hundred grand a month, right? I mean, I, my, my peak was a hundred grand a year. And now seven years later, I make a hundred grand a month and just switching that mentality to like, 
the scarcity mindset to there's an un, there's an infinite amount of money out there. Go get it. And that was huge. You know, that first piece about like the value you gave, I think that's a, a good mentality to have, whether it be trying to find a mentor or even if you have a normal job and you have a boss is thinking through the lens of for that person, how do you make their life easier? A lot of times we just focus on, you know, how we do the best job we can, but sometimes we forget about the other person. We forget about the boss or the person you're trying to get to help you. Like, how do you add value to their life? Because that's not always the same thing. Like you doing good work isn't always adding value to them. Curious with this uh, television deal. That's one thing we haven't really talked about is, was it a situation like that that led to this coming to fruition? And if not, that's totally fine. Just, you know, how did that come about? Yes. So I will tell you as much as I can without going against my NDA that I've been forced to sign. So, okay. So basically I go on, well, I bought all these houses and I'm renting them out by the bedroom and the money's insane. And because of my success there, I get picked up by CNBC and that interview goes viral. From there, I go on Bigger Pockets, a podcast like this one we're doing now, a bunch of other podcasts. And Bigger Pockets puts me on the cover of their wealth magazine for one of their issues. So that's really crazy. And then, based on all of that stuff, in my area, there's a 425 business magazine, which is basically Seattle's 30 under 30. And they have me on in their 30 under 30 as like the big money guy because uh, the income is seven figures a year now. So I had all these crazy things happen. I get a call from a streaming company. Can't say which one, but it's a big streaming company. Everybody has it. Everybody has it. Anyway, <laughs> about doing a reality show about real estate. That call actually doesn't go anywhere because filming is up in the air about coronavirus and all this other stuff. Um, so that kind of fizzles out. But in the meantime, I get contacted by two other television networks about two other shows. And I'm actually flying to LA today after we're done recording to go talk to one of those networks about doing a show. And in one of the shows, just based on what we've talked about, it sounds like I would make seven figures in just filming the first season, which would take about six weeks, maybe two months. So I'd make a million dollars or more in about two months. Now, nothing is set in stone. Nothing has really been agreed to. It's all still up in the air. Hopefully, I'll have some more clarity when I go to Los Angeles and I talk to these networks. But yeah, it it wasn't like I reached out to a producer of a show and I said, hey, I'll be your free assistant for whatever. It was honestly because of all these other things that had happened for me, getting in the public eye, these interviews going viral, which I have no idea why they went viral. Some, some do and some don't. It was just sort of the perfect storm of, frankly, really lucky. To get on CNBC, I had to do these things, right? And to get on Bigger Pockets, I had to actually be legit and own real estate and all these things. But since all that stuff went viral and there was magazines and it you know, was on the news and like all this other stuff, that just lended itself to all these other opportunities that have been coming my way and has been just absolutely crazy. Well, of course, there's an element of luck, Todd, but I don't want you to sell yourself too short because anybody, yeah, could get picked up by CNBC for whatever reason, but you've for 20 something years had been making these strategic decisions. You were interesting enough where they'd want to pick you up. You were making multiple six figures from these real estate properties. So obviously there's definitely an element of luck, but you have to put yourself in the place where you know, luck is actually going to help you catapult to that next rung. But Todd, you know, I'm hoping that, you know, this TV thing works out and that people listening to this show, whenever this airs, whenever you're listening, can, you know, watch you on this TV show when it airs. 
For those of you who do want to follow along, want to, you know, read more about what you're doing, where are some of the best places they can do that? On Instagram, I am at Todd J. Baldwin. Admittedly, I used to be super quick to respond to DMs and now I, just, I get thousands like every day. So I am I am slower to respond to DMs now. I will probably still respond. It just might take a while. But at Todd J. Baldwin on Instagram, I also have like if you have real estate specific questions or you just want to know more about real estate, I have it all on my YouTube channel, which is just my name, Todd Baldwin on YouTube. Super easy to find. And uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. Well, Todd has been a super, super impressive story, inspiring story and, and, and so many different layers to it. And so I think I'm definitely interested in following along as well. I just want to thank you again for coming on the show. This has been a great conversation and I appreciate you giving us a little bit of that time. Absolutely. No, thank you guys for having me on. It was a pleasure to be here. I'm, I'm a fan of your show. After you guys reached out to me, I started, you know, checking you out and listening and you guys have great stuff and you have great stories that come on. So you're, you're doing awesome and I'm happy I was able to be a part of it. And as always, if you want to check out our Facebook group page, you can do so at thefyshow.com slash community. And we always appreciate those five-star reviews. They help us get great guests like we had today. And if you're interested in supporting The Fi Show, you can do so by checking out some of our partners over at the resources page, which can be found at thefyshow.com slash resources. And thanks for listening. Hey, real quick, before you go, I just want to remind you that I have made my personal like budget and net worth tracking spreadsheet available, the very same one that I use to track my net worth from $38,000 to over $1.2 million, available for free on our website at thefyshow.com slash spreadsheet. So you can go download that today. That's thefyshow.com slash spreadsheet.